Have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. My name is Strangely. This is the podcast, and if you're listening to it, that makes you one of the friends. Sorry that this episode is coming a bit late. I'm coming to the end of the quarter with school, and I've had to write a paper every week uh, for the last two weeks, and I've got two more big papers to do before the quarter's done. But then it'll be summer, and hopefully I can spend more time making this podcast, because this is this is really my favorite thing to be doing right now. This and the um, some of the writing projects I'm working on, which eventually I think I'll tell you about, but not this episode. Uh, for now, let's see, I need to comment on something in the current cultural zeitgeist. Uh, oh yeah, the, the Snyder Cut is happening. Um, if you don't know what that means, congratulations, you're a very lucky person that you've managed to avoid what I would argue is one of the most toxic uh, fandom things of the last year or so. Um, essentially, a bunch of internet trolls didn't like a movie and thought that the director's original cut of the movie was better and have pretty much bullied a studio into releasing it. Uh, it's much more complicated than that, but... Frankly, a bunch of people whine on the internet and they're getting their way, and that just kind of bothers me. Anyway, uh, there, I've commented on something in the current cultural zeitgeist, now let us speak of it no more. Uh, is there any other like news or updates about me? Not really. I I stepped on a nail. Another reason that I didn't make an episode last week is I stepped on a nail two weeks ago and it ended up being this like multi-day thing of like, do I go to a clinic to get a, um, a Tdap booster or not? And I, I ended up going and getting the Tdap booster. I'm not going to die of the lockjaw, so don't worry. Although me being alone in a cabin, isolated and dying of lockjaw sounds like old timely poetic. It's like finding out that someone you know has dyspepsia. Like, it's just like, what even is that anymore? Anyway, uh, let's get started with the regular episode. Here we go. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. WHO IMPOSED THIS RULE?! The Elements of Style by Strunk and White I've heard other writers refer to this book as one that they keep handy when the mood strikes, a kind of bedside devotional of composition, and upon reading it, I can see why. This book is a shiny example of pedagogy. I cannot remember the last time I had anything explained so clearly and with such verve and gentle humor. If you are a writer, an aspiring writer, or just someone who wants to improve your ability to communicate in English, this book is phenomenal. Although the English language is varied and full of subtleties, which can take a lifetime to master, Strunk and White approaches things practically. Yes, there may be hundreds of rules for writing, but you can probably get by reasonably well with a couple dozen, and what a glorious couple dozen they are. In order to break all the rules, as we often wish to do, we must first understand them. And if I have to learn the rules, I'll always choose Strunk and White to teach them to me. 
Movie Club. On the last episode of the podcast, I promised that I would watch Casablanca and then share some thoughts about it. So, here they are. About 20 minutes into the film, I had an uncanny feeling of deja vu. That I'd seen this movie before. Upon reflection, after watching it, I realized that I had not, and yet... I sort of had? I think it has something to do with the landmark status of the original and the effect that it has had upon the entire landscape of cinema. I mean, half the lines in this thing are super quotable, and they've been reused in everything. Heck, the, of all the gin joints in all the world line is sampled in one of the tracks that plays on my Chill Hot playlist that I use while I'm reading and writing. The film has permeated popular culture so extensively that it remains untouched. Think about that for a second. This movie has never been remade. In almost 80 years, nobody has tried to remake it. It's that respected. I mean, yeah, some idiots tried to make not one, but two television series spin-offs, both of which were mercifully short-lived, stage musicals and the like, and every once in a while there's a rumor going around that someone wants to remake it. Most recently, I think Madonna wanted to. But it seems like the public isn't interested in it. A cursory internet search turned up at least a dozen books about this film's production and cultural import, so probably everything to say about it has been said. What is there to say? Well, I noticed two things. First, Claude Rains as Captain Louis Renault. I just, look, I'm sorry, okay? He was playing the character so gay and thirsty for Rick that I just cannot deal with it. Whew. Okay, internet fangirl squee moment over. But seriously, I desperately want to find in some big tell-all book about the making of this film confirmation that Claude Rains was playing Renault as a gay character. There's so much swish to him that I just can't help but find it delicious. I know this reading of the character doesn't really bear out considering that he's also implied to be shaking down women for sexual favors as bribes, but since it's implied, I can also picture him saying, okay, you have to pretend I've done this to you. I'm imagining a character like Captain Shakespeare from the film Stardust. I can't help but see the best in people, I suppose. Which brings me to the other thing I noticed. This film is a pretty resounding rejection of the nice guy narrative. Think about it. Rick is the wronged party here, really. He falls in love with Ilsa, and then she ditches him without an explanation. Next thing he knows, she's shown up with another man, who is her husband, that she's been married to all along and never told him about. He's a bit of a dick about it, to be sure, but the shock is clearly a slap to his ego. When she finally explains, we learn that she thought her husband was dead during the time she and Rick were courting in Paris. It's suddenly an understandable dilemma from both sides, and Rick actually sees that. He sticks his neck out for them. There's a moment where her husband actually offers to let Rick leave with Elsa, Ilsa, just so she can be safe. But he doesn't do it. He sees ahead to the moment when she'll regret the decision to leave the love of her life and run off with him. Rick gives her and her husband the passes to leave the country, sacrificing himself for their escape. As they soar away in the last plane and the Nazis close in, Rick seems at peace with his decision. I'm not going to spoil the final twist here, just in case you still haven't seen the film, because it's a doozy. Getting back to the point, though, I love that this film about a romance for the ages is secretly about someone deciding to put their care of someone else ahead of their own desire to be with that person. This is the exact opposite of the nice guy narrative. 
wherein someone believes themselves entitled to the affection, time, or body of another person just because they've, quote, been nice, unquote. As though relationships are currency, that a girl who just wants to be friends with with a guy is putting him in the friend zone. And yet, here's Rick, the coolest cat in cinema, letting someone go because he knows it's the best thing. He chooses someone else's happiness above his own. Is he kind of a dick about it as he goes along? Yeah, it was the 40s. But I think the stunning nature of this sacrifice is pretty amazing given the fact that much of our society still doesn't seem to have learned this lesson. One bit of hilarious trivia I learned about the film before I close this out. Most of the Nazis in Casablanca were played by German Jews who had recently escaped from Germany, most notably Konrad Veidt as Major Heinrich Strasser, who insisted that if he was going to play a Nazi, he must play him as a sniveling piece of shit with no redeeming qualities. Apparently the character was written rather more suave in the script, like think James Bond movie villain. I love this. As a fuck you to the Third Reich, it ranks right up there with Charlie Chaplin's two-hour, two-million-dollar, that's my mustache, you twit, film, The Great Dictator. After after setting up this movie club concept, or whatever we'll end up calling it, I got contacted by some of you listeners who were worried that we wouldn't have time to catch the film before I talked about it. So, since I'm late on this episode and we had like two weeks for you to watch it, I figured why not make the movie club thing bi-weekly? So, in two weeks, I'll be talking about the next movie club, or whatever we call it, film, and I've picked 1981's Dragon Slayer, which I have never seen. So, uh, I think it'll be fun. I don't know anything about it other than someone used clips from it to make like a fan trailer for the Hobbit trilogy. Like before, the, like when it was first announced, someone made like a fan trailer and used clips from Dragon Slayer. So I'm really curious to see that. Uh, anyway, that's it for the movie club segment or whatever we end up calling it. Please like message me or contact me with better titles for it because I don't know what to call it. Here's a thought. Why is prurience the quickest way to my heart? I began thinking about this question when I finished the stellar second season of BBC's Fleabag. I know I'm rather late to the Phoebe Waller-Bridge's dope party, but in my defense, I met her years ago at the Edinburgh Fringe and we did not get on. That might sound rather petty, but at Fringe, everything is turned up to 11 and sometimes you find yourself making snap judgments to save your sanity. I was doing my umpteenth cabaret appearance of the day and trying to maintain an upbeat mood before going out on stage and screaming at a room full of bored punters and she was... Well, she just seemed like she was too good for the show we were about to be in. Or at least that was my take on it. Needless to say, I'm more than willing to admit when I'm wrong. She's a brilliant woman and her writing is fantastic, so I'm more than happy to put my beef to rest. Not that it was ever beef. Please don't at me over this. Where was I? Oh yeah, Fleabag. It's a brilliant show. It tricks you into thinking you're going to get a no-holds-barred romp with a narcissistic sociopath who doesn't care much about anyone else, and then takes a sharp turn into pathos. That's the trick that Fleabag accomplishes more than anything I've ever seen. It opens with an extended two-and-a-half-minute joke leading up to a woman contemplating if her asshole is tight or not. But then... 
it becomes something really, really emotional. And by the end of the first season, you're crying with these characters. It, it presents a cast of deeply unlikable people and then proceeds to make you care about them more than you ever thought possible. Not through the sheer slamming your face against it over and over and over again, producing the Stockholm Syndrome reminiscent adoration apparent in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia fans, but rather through a genuine exploration of what makes these people tick. This show builds empathy. That's not to say anyone's reasons excuse anything they do, but rather that Wallerbridge is excellent at providing a window into a path that you could see yourself going down in similar circumstances. And the show is exceptionally funny. I may seem to be getting off topic here, but that's precisely my point. These characters are despicable people doing horrid things to one another, and yet, I find them endearing. Why? Because unlike the ISIP gang, I could see myself becoming them if a few things go differently in my life. I feel connected to these people because of their deep and yet somehow simultaneously petty flaws. This builds connections with characters. If you can laugh with a character or chuckle knowingly at the mistakes they've made, you feel connected to them. I may catch some flack for this, but I loved the show Scrubs. At, at least the first eight seasons, ending with my finale. Nothing was produced after that, no matter what anyone may tell you. Speaking of admitting I'm wrong, I, was ha I am, am happy to admit that series has not aged well in many respects. But in one, it will always be a top tenor for me. And it was the show's ability to build the kind of connection I'm talking about here. Scrubs regularly oscillated wildly between slapstick comedy and heart-wrenching pathos. A feat accomplished because both extremes are really the s different sides of the same coin. To paraphrase Mandy Patinkin's character Rube in the show Dead Like Me, also awesome, the difference between comedy and tragedy is distance. You see a guy fall off a ladder, land on his ass, that's comedy. But you get up close, see the tears in that guy's eyes, and understand that he's about to lose his job because he's injured, that's tragedy. Scrubs controlled this distancing perfectly, often allowing stories to meander away from the points of emotion as the characters got distracted in wacky hijinks, only to have the whole joyous house of cards come crashing down when a patient died. I think this is best explained through one relationship in the show. In the first and second seasons, the actor John Ritter had a recurring guest role as JD's, that's the main character JD, JD's father. During the lead-up to season 4 in 2003, Ritter tragically passed away. The show wrote an entire episode as a tribute to him with JD and his brother reminiscing about their father and dealing with the character's death in their own peculiar ways. It's funny, but it's also heart-wrenching. This is further enhanced by the fact that Ritter had previously appeared. He'd urged his son to pull his finger and then farted when he did. It's perhaps a bit low-brow for a thespian of Ritter's talent, but I think that's kind of the point. I don't need to draw your attention to the fact that when you miss someone, it's rarely for their most shining and positive qualities. To quote one of my favorite lines from Guillermo del Toro's 2004 film Hellboy, My uncle used to say that we like people for their qualities, but we love them for their defects. Yes, I know it's spoken by that piece of garbage studio note-made Flesh Myers. Look, I hate the character, but the line is good, okay? Del Toro can write a hell of a script, and even when he has to put a piece of garbage character like that in the script, he still gives him a really good line, and I think that's... Sorry. Whew. Sorry. I hate that character. 
I'm so glad he's off in Antarctica. <clears throat> but the quote's a good one. One that Scrubs understood. I think it's the characters who do a bit of wrong that we can most identify with. I don't think it's much of a wonder that more people would prefer to be Tony Stark, Black Widow, Nebula, or Gamora than want to be Captain America. We need people with flaws because we have flaws. Which is why I think I find myself much more moved by films that aren't afraid to go blue. One of my top five favorite films of 2019 was Longshot, a romantic comedy about a schlubby blogger, played by Seth Rogen, falling in love with the statuesque Secretary of State, slayed by Charlize Theron. The film includes numerous funny man fall down gags, including a nutshot. Speaking of nutshots, at one point Seth Rogen's character, well to put it delicately, he masturbates and some of the uh, goes in his beard. Gross. Look, it all happens off camera and it's mostly implied, but still gross. But the thing is, the movie is about that grossness and how people work through it together. By the time the romance reaches its climax and it turns out love can conquer all, including the foibles and the people who love each other, I would argue that without that scene of supreme but ultimately harmless grossness, we would not cheer at the end when the leads decide to look past each other's mistakes. By the way, lest you think the film is the classic gross schlubby guy gets the hot girl who decides to fix him and look past his grossness trope, she has plenty of grossness of a different kind going on in her end of things, and I think that's great. The film actually does a really good job of playing with the power dynamics in a relationship and presenting an exploration of how much you'd be willing to bend your principles for someone else. I'm getting misty-eyed just thinking about this movie. I know it doesn't sound like beautiful love and Seth Rogen being gross belong in the same movie, but they really, really do. It's, oh, long shot's great. Go watch it. When I sat down to write this exploration of this topic, I was not entirely sure where I was going with this. I'm still not, to be honest. But what I do know for sure is that I think I can tie most of it to the simple fact that I laugh really hard with someone. And it makes me prepared to cry really hard with them too. I think the films that go there, as it were, are the films that feel like I've been on a journey. Speaking of journeys, that's something that Lord of the Rings movies do really well. You feel like they went someplace. I know it's popular to make fun of all the walking, trekking, hiking, rowing, swimming, stumbling, climbing, scrambling, jogging, running, riding, galloping, tree bearding in these films, but frankly, they would not be nearly as good without them. Case in point, the Hobbit films, which ditched the wonderful traveling sequences in favor of Peter Jackson CGI platformer sequences. I owe that wonderful turn of phrase to my friend Brad Nelson. The same thing is happening in some gross-out comedies. They allow us to explore the depths of someone's mistakes and problems while keeping the tone light. When things get real, as they often have to, we've been there every step of the way allowing us a chance at seeing into the beating heart inside the characters that we've spent time with. One last caveat before I finish what has ballooned into a 1500 word musing on fart jokes. 
I'm not saying this excuses bad behavior in real life or in cinema. Rather, I'm arguing that when used well, moments of over-the-top prurience can be used to build empathy and connection. You may not agree with me, but then again, I seem to be the only person around who likes pineapple on my pizza. <sighs> I need more coffee. Hokey fright. Have you heard about Project X? Speaking of prurient movies that have a little bit of emotion towards the end. You've heard this story before. A kid's parents are out of town, the kid decides to throw a party, and invite a few friends, and then way more people than expected show up! It's the premise for any number of television filler episodes, Katy Perry's song Last Friday Night, and more cautionary Christian devotional tales from my childhood than I care to relate. We all know how it goes. So what sets Project X apart? I think it's the fact that from the very outset, this film is swinging for the fences, and I can honestly say I was not prepared for how far it goes. This is not just a teen party goes too far film, this is THE teen party goes too far film. At least that's what it sets out to be, and the producers do an admirable job. The three kids playing the leads have good chemistry with each other, something that was helped by the producers sending them off for a week at Disneyland together. I don't know why I find that so charming. I think it's because of all the bacchanalic depths the film descends to, it's hilarious to think that such a wholesome activity-filled week was the basis for the friendship that fueled the debauchery depicted in the film. And debauched it is, as all the extras in the film are responsible for a liveliness that most crowd scenes lack, with improvisation being the name of the game. The decision to cast almost entirely unknowns pays off because nobody is playing to a type here. With the exception of a couple of notable celebrity cameos playing with the public perceptions of their own typecastings, I would almost half believe that this is real. But it's a movie, you say. And you'd be right, of course, but this was produced in 2012 at the height of the found footage boom, and I have to be honest, the medium is part of what sells this so well. The aforementioned improvising extras even contributed some of the filming with mobile phones and digital camcorders, so the whole thing really does have an amateur, edited, found footage documentary feel. But my favorite aspect of this monstrosity is the perfect escalation that strains reality to the breaking point without ever fully snapping it. As the party begins to grow and spiral, taking on a life of its own, the stakes and the stupidity mounts. And yet, there is no point of no return where the film tips over into a completely unbelievable realm. Things don't take a turn in the third act where suddenly alien saucers are beaming people up or demons rise from a crack in the earth. Instead, we are treated to a spectacle that is just barely possible, which is the trick here. This movie pushes the envelope to the very limits, but manages to toe the line just enough that everything here could happen. As I write this, I cannot help but compare this to any number of films over the last 10 years where the laws of physics seem less than palpable. I know it's the role of films to defy reality, but I often wonder at the lack of consistent reality in any given narrative. You know, how strong is Captain America? As strong as we need him to be for this scene, and so on. 
It's almost refreshing to watch a film that has its stakes in a world so well constructed that by the time the nudity montage starts, of course this film has a gratuitous nudity montage. It's a party movie. You actually believe that it could have happened like that. But through it all, you have three leads who, despite their foibles, manage to be a charming trio of boys wrestling with the cusp of adulthood in ways that feel very real. This reality of personality is directly possible because of the ridiculousness of the events surrounding them. In much the same way that many YA novels externalize teen issues by making them about giant cities that eat each other, or clades of vampire mice, or evil comic book collectors, or whatever the hell, this film manages to compress a year of being a teenager into 90 harrowing minutes. This movie is debauched, insane, frightening, and cringe-inducing, but there is more heart than I was expecting in it, too. I'm not saying it's good, but at least now you've heard about it. Song of the Week. High Barbary. This is a sort of a sea shanty. Uh, I learned this out of a, a book of traditional British naval songs. It, it actually has a number. I can't remember the number. It's like Naval Song 174 or something like that. Uh and I've known this for years, and there's all different versions out there. This is one of the ones I like to do. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. There's a, there's a repeated pair of lines. It's that sort of call and response kind of thing. And when I do this live, I like to do a call and response. Um, anyway, I, I've been in sort of a nautical mood lately because I, uh, I finally got a copy of Moby Dick. So anyway, here is my rendition of High Barbary. Down a 
along the coast of Ivory. Oh, t'was broadside, t'was broadside, a long time lay we. Oh, high, blow, low, and so say we. Until we shot her mass away and blew them in the sea. Down along the coast of Ivory. Four quarters, four quarters, that saucy pirate cried. Blow high, blow low, and so say we. The only quarters we showed them was to sink them in the tide. Dick. As I mentioned before the song, I got a copy of Moby Dick! And I'm about 20% of the way through it. Here, uh, le let me read you my favorite passage so far. <clears throat> Again, I always go to sea as a sailor, because they make a point of paying me for my trouble, whereas they never pay passengers a single penny that I ever heard of. On the contrary, passengers themselves must pay. And there is all the difference in the world between paying and being paid. The act of paying is perhaps the most uncomfortable affliction that the two orchard thieves entailed upon us, but being paid? What will compare with it? The urbane activity with which man receives money is really marvelous, considering that we so earnestly believe money to be the root of all earthly ills, and on no account can a moneyed man enter heaven. Ah. How cheerfully we consign ourselves to perdition. This book is great. I can't wait to read more. Number two. Learn to understand my carbon footprint. I'm, I haven't done anything on this lately. I mean, I'm too busy getting crunk with my boy Ishmael on this totally never gonna run out whale oil. Look, I don't have to worry about the clap. Number three. Finish lessons. Every dang day. Finnish word of the week, raukus, which means love. Raukus, love. It's just nice, raukus. Uh, if I was going to say I love, it would be um, mina raukusan. I think the formulation, the verb formulation, I'm still learning, but raukus. Number four, quit streaming stuff. So I wrote in the last episode about how I'm kind of adjusting my rules on this just because of the world we live in, and I'm feeling pretty good about all the tiny tweaks and exceptions I've made. I'm still reading as much as I want, and it's allowed me to find more content for this podcast. So I think we're doing okay. Number five, make 36 episodes of this podcast. Moving on. Number six, read 52 books. I've read 37 books now, so I'm way ahead of the curve here. 50-word movie reviews. The Aeronauts. 
More high-octane thrills and visual splendor than you would ever expect from a film about two people sitting in a wicker basket. A real cheek clencher. Jones and Redmayne are delightful, and it's always a pleasure to see a heterosexual couple have chemistry that doesn't force them to kiss. Good boys. This is equal parts Goonies and Superbad, and the blend just works. I don't often laugh out loud when watching a film alone. I did with this wee gem, which manages to take things just far enough to be funny without ever crossing any unforgivable lines. Not for kids? Perfect. Mailbag. So I'm not currently in Bellingham, but eventually I will be again, and if you'd like to send me paper mail, you can send it to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. Number 21. Yeah, uh, so my studio number there is number 21. Also, in light of current regulations in some places, I've relaxed my communication style for this podcast, and you can send me emails or Patreon messages. So you don't have to worry about leaving the house to stay in touch. Uh, you can send those emails to strangely.dusberg, that's S-T-R-A-N-G-E-L-Y dot D-O-E-S-B-U-R-G at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This creative endeavor has really been a lifeline for me over the last couple of months and I hope that it has reached you as well Strangely and Friends the podcast is produced in a secret undisclosed location by me, Strangely Duesberg The podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters on Patreon, including my executive producer patrons Kim Truett and Tina Jones Kim and Tina, thank you so much you can check out patreon.com strangely to find out how you can help make more of whatever this is. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production. Oh, crap. I'm supposed to read you limericks, and I don't even have the limerick book nearby. Uh, uh, what am I going to do? <laughs> Hang on. I'll go get it. I'll get it. I'm getting the limerick book. Just over here in the kitchen. There was an old man whose despair induced him to purchase a bear. He played on some trumpets and fed upon crumpets, which rather assuaged his despair. There was an old person of Sidon who bought a small pony to ride on. But he found him too small to leap over a wall, so he walked that old person of Sidon. <laughs> so there you go. A couple of Edward Lear limericks to uh, send you out on your week. I'll see you next time, folks. Cheers.